while I was coming out of denial and while I was coming out of the closet to myself, I had already been processing the way that my identity rubbed against my faith. And so by the time other people besides myself knew, I had already been saying goodbye to and already had been leaving most of the parts of my faith behind me because I was such a strong believer and I was such a hard line, like fundamentalist that it was really patently clear to me kind of from the, from the get go that um, these two aspects of my identity weren't going to be able to exist uh, together. Hello and welcome to Out Loud. Out Loud is a podcast by and for queer people of faith in the South. Here we tell our stories of varied religious upbringings, messy coming outs, and the gift of community with one another. I'm your host, Greg Thompson, and the voice you just heard was Justin Hiltner. Justin is a queer banjo player, songwriter, journalist, and activist living here in Nashville. I heard his voice on the podcast Dolly Parton's America around this time last year, where he gave a queer take on the classic song, Jolene. And ever since then, I knew I just had to have him on the show. Justin's faith has been tested throughout his life so far, from coming out to his family in rural Ohio, to his fight against cancer more recently. His journey toward healing has been one of an evolving worldview, starting with accepting those who have not accepted him along the way, and gradually learning how to accept himself. Despite these hardships, Justin is flourishing as a bluegrass musician here in Middle Tennessee. He writes for The Bluegrass Situation, an online publication covering bluegrass roots music. Justin's also the chair of the board for Bluegrass Pride, an organization that promotes inclusion in bluegrass music. And he's the first openly gay man to receive a nomination from the International Bluegrass Music Association. And if that weren't enough, Justin's working on his debut solo record set to come out in 2021. But before we jump in, a quick shout out to all of our supporters over on Patreon. We have been so fortunate to have the financial support we needed in 2020 to continue bringing you new episodes of Out Loud. From purchasing equipment so that we could safely record from home, to bringing in new theme music and a wonderful new editor, the show has grown so much over this past year, all thanks to your support. As we look to continue recording in the new year, consider becoming a member on Patreon. Your contributions directly finance this show and the hard work it takes to make it. You can give for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash outloudstories. And now, let's hear from Justin Hiltner. Well, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. It's, I'm excited to chat. Me too. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to start just by talking about your faith growing up. Can you tell me a little bit about the religious upbringing uh, of your childhood? Yeah, I, it's, hmm, it's an interesting thing to dive into because faith is so ubiquitous in my childhood that it's, it's hard to even find a starting point. Hmm. Um, I, um, am one of six kids and, um, we were all homeschooled, um, K through 12. Um, and that choice um, by my parents was couched solidly in their faith and in their belief that they were the vehicles for like God's truth through our education, um, 
and through um, like protecting us and sheltering us from what they saw as being like outside influences that they didn't want us to be exposed to too prematurely. Um, and so uh, I was raised in that sort of conservative evangelical um, homeschool movement. Uh, my parents were both raised Catholic and Catholicism had traumatized them or um, wounded them in such ways that they, they kind of went on the opposite end of the spectrum, which was away from doctrine and more towards a personal walk, uh, more towards mm-hmm. a personal like belief and relationship in Christ and a more like New Testament focused um, belief. And so that's what we were raised in. And Ohio's interesting in that like it's a really populous state, but it's also a very rural state. Um, and it's, uh, it's a swing state, but, um, very, very Christian. And we went to a church that was non-denominational and, and very, um, worship focused, very, um, very like personal walk with Christ sort of focused. And we went to that church, um, for until I was about 13 or 14. And then we home churched for a while. Um, we did like the unchurching sort of home churching thing with other families for a period of years. and then right around the time I was coming out to myself and coming out to, um, to, to, uh, uh, the people I had grown up with, the people that, you know, I'd grown up with in homeschooling and in the church, my family started going to a new, a smaller church plant that was based in the, um, uh, James McDonald sort of Moody Bible Institute, um, uh, new church plant kind of approach to, progressive churching. Um, and so that's kind of the short version of growing up homeschooled. And we also did faith-based curriculum. So it was really, it was really pervasive, um, throughout my childhood. Yeah. How did, um, how, how were you involved with your church? Was it through music or what was kind of your experience? It was kind of a little bit of everything. Um, my personality being such that, you know, I started playing banjo when I was six and started performing, um, uh, around 10 or 11. So my involvement in the church was always kind of, um, based in my belief that like my musical talents were, you know, a, a, a God given gift. Um, and my, uh, <laughs> my willingness and, or a need to be in the spotlight was definitely like how my relationship with the church, um, unspooled very much like i i felt the holy spirit like so palpably and so viscerally and i was a member of the kids worship team and i did puppet shows with my brother and we did i was a church camp counselor and was in the like the praise team for the church camp um and it was really organic but in retrospect you can tell how it was all very much like oh my social currency at the time, especially being homeschooled where our, our social interactions were pretty, pretty much the church, our homeschool group and my siblings, the social currency I did have as a youngster and as a teenager came from the church because that was really my only social circle. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, for me, that's what so much of church is about is, is about community and, and feeling included and, and belonging and all of that. I think that's, that's such a common experience in a way. Um, what was, what was coming out like when you were still going to church with your family and what was, 
what was their response? What was their community's response like? Yeah. So I, um, I was 17. Um, it was November, 2009. And my brother, my older brother, um, outed me. Um, he had had some concerns about my internet use, my computer use, and he installed software on my computer to track um, what I was doing on the internet. Oh, wow. Like we had really strict accountability kind of uh, measures in place for us in our use of the internet. So my mom had like free reign of my computer and most nights like you had to leave it somewhere where she could have access to it and it wasn't password protected or anything. Um, and so it, as it happened, my mom was like, look, I have his computer. I can show you everything's fine. Like we have these rules where he's not allowed to like do stuff on there. That's not. Um, and then my brother hit a couple of hotkeys and the software was supposed to be sending him emails. Anytime I went to a website that met a certain safety protocol, um, but hadn't been. So then there was this, this backlog of, um, probably hundreds of websites, um, gay porn, um, gay social networking sites, um, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I was 17 and I had been coming out of the closet to myself over a period of a few years. Um, and so like the first thing, like when mom and dad are like, what is this? What is, what, what is this email account? What are these things? What are these accounts? What's the, what are these websites? It was immediately like me dug my heels in like, I'm gay and I'm not changing. (laughs) Um, and it was just, um, for a period of about a year and a half, it was just abject chaos, and and I don't even know how to describe it. It was it was mm-hmm. as, as if I had been put on house arrest, um, where I wasn't really allowed to go anywhere, or do anything, interact with anyone. But also, there weren't really any options for me to do any of the above because homeschooled, sheltered. All of my friends were in the church and like homeschool groups, and and so it just kind of devolved into this like cold war of me being a minor and and living at their living in their home and being subject to their rules and their sort of the way that they reacted was very classically um christian evangelical like conservative head in the sand sort of like uh I remember one of the first things they said to me was about how we quote unquote, didn't know how people got AIDS. And that was something that I need to be like, I'm 17. Never happened. Like haven't ever been sexually active, like barely got a talk when it came to sex, like, and minutes after they find out that I'm gay, they're telling, talking to me about AIDS, which they know nothing about. Um, They took me to, a Christian therapist. They took me to an, a therapist affiliated with Exodus International. They um, had. They went to their their preachers and pastors and deacons and elders and friends and everything for advice and counsel. And um, they went to my pediatrician, who was um, a creationist, pro life um, Christian evangelical and he literally prescribed a couple of chapters of romans and pro back um like on the subscription pad it said romans it was like it wasn't (laughs) as if he wrote it on the prescription pad but it was like here's a prescription for prozac and also tell your son to read chapters romans chapters one and two or whichever are the two chapters that are the ones that mention homosexuality as closely in name as anywhere in the new testament um Mm -hmm. It was, it was just, it was as if their imaginations could not contain 
anything related to homosexuality. And at the same time, they, they just looked around to the nearest sort of cliche responses that were available to them. And they chose every single one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think while I was coming out of denial and while I was coming out of the closet to myself, I had already been processing the way that my identity rubbed against my faith. And so by the time other people besides myself knew, I had already been saying goodbye to and already had been leaving most of the parts of my faith behind me because Mm. I was such a strong believer and I was such a hard line, like fundamentalist that it was really patently clear to me kind of from the, from the get go that um, these two aspects of my identity weren't going to be able to exist uh, together. And that's not how I, that's not what I believe now looking back might disagree with my 17 year old self or 15 year old self in, in taking that belief. I'm really grateful that that really forced me to retool my worldview in an active way rather than a passive one and really decide like, what do I believe in why and how do I give vocabulary to my belief systems in a way that isn't just, um, opposite Christianity or opposite Mm -hmm. the mainstream, even though like now I'll look back and think it's a little silly that I was so vehemently like anti-church and anti-Christian right as I was coming out. Um, it is exactly why I have such a strong salient worldview now. It's like, I I had to, especially because, you know, growing up Christian homeschooled creationist, evangelical pro-life, like all of those things, like that ends up being a really big portion of one's identity. And to have that gone all of a sudden and leave that vacuum, um, I knew I needed something to fill that space. And I wanted it to be something that was its own entity and not just an anti-entity, not just anti-Christ, not just anti-the church, not just anti-Christianity. Yeah. I think that's really healthy (laughs) because it's, it's, it's good to be able to, to expose yourself to new things i think at that age and 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 to be in places where your identity isn't um a liability um mm. to other people yeah it's, it's i when i moved to nashville um a few years ago it was only a year after i had come out and it was kind of this like break for me to say to go to a new place and kind of step into you know new friendships where i can redefine who i am and mm-hmm. And it's given me, it gave me a lot of space to just try different churches and try different things and, and to not feel like I grew up Roman Catholic. So it was like Mm -hmm. to just not have to identify myself as Catholic in every space I went into was, was helpful. Um, and it was good to be able to say, you know, oh, I could go to a church. I I could attend a service on Sunday that does affirm LGBT people and see what that feels like. And it felt really nice. Um, so I think it's, I think it's just like part of the process um, for so many of us is to like, is to explore what else is out there. But I love what you're saying too, of like not being totally anti everything, but finding ways to keep things possibly too. Part of that, (laughs) part of that is directly tied to how I was taught the gospel growing up Mm -hmm. where I remember really viscerally um, I had an uncle Uh, growing up that was uh, uh, atheist and was, he loved to talk to me about science and evolution. And I was really anti-evolution and 
really, really, really creationist. And we would talk about it a lot. And at one point, I was so worried for his soul. I like called him on the phone and was just witnessing to him over the phone. And Mm -hmm. I remember getting off the phone and just crying and crying and just worrying about like his soul and like, how does this person that I care so much and love about, how will they ever get into heaven? And I remember my dad being like, the best way to reach those that we perceive as lost would be to, to, to walk with Christ, to live as Christ lived and to let your daily life be a witness because witnessing to people out of desperation, um, that that wasn't ever going to be the way that you would really reach to reach people. You can't translate the desperation, that feeling of existential sort of importance. You can't translate that outside of yourself. That's something that has to come from inside somebody else. And now it's, directly one-to-one related for me now that my perspective on uh i refuse to plead with anyone in any level of desperation to acknowledge my right to exist i like refuse to uh i refuse to fall into desperation to to make those outside of my worldview validate that worldview because that's just not how it works and I'm, I, I, I know that that came directly from those conversations around how do you really truly take this personally held belief and that visceral feeling of the Holy Spirit and translate that to somebody else? And my dad just being like, you can't do that. You can't. That's something that God and the Holy Spirit has to do for every other individual person. And now in my post-Christian Christian life, my post-Christian life, I would say, um, the reason why I still try not to approach any of those sort of paradigms with that desperation is, is that, that, uh, nugget from my dad all those years ago. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's a great nugget. I mean, like, yeah, that's one of those things that I feel like does translate from a religious system into the real world so nicely, um, that, that we don't, try to change other people. Um, and, and it's something that's really hard to watch today. I think mm. as religion becomes so much more politicized and it does become this act of desperation to get you to come to church with me and to believe what I believe and to right. vote the way I vote. And, um, and it does feel like it's this, I mean, especially in a country with a two party system that it's one or the other, that it's anti this mm-hmm. or anti that. And so, and that's yeah. where religion plays this great middle ground of saying, you know, we're going to walk with people, and and uh, or at least not not all religions say that, but at least I think those are things that Jesus said is that we're gonna, you know, we're gonna walk with people and and go to the margins and be with them and meet them where they are. Right. Well, um, I think that like yeah. that that idea of uh, I like that you phrased it like walk with people. What it speaks to is an understanding of autonomy and um, agency that I think the church um, and we could say a a lot of major faith traditions um, in the world today sometimes struggles with, and that's how it often rubs up against um, uh, queerness and LGBTQ folks Mm -hmm. and the agnostic or, or atheistic a dash theistic, um, way that I would, um, look at that now is, um, I, I understand that even if someone else is expressing their agency or autonomy in a way 
that stifles mine. Agency and autonomy are the most sacred aspects of humanity, of being human. And they really, that, that fact is not really evidenced better than in the fact that of seven billion plus people on earth, there are seven billion ways to have faith and to believe and to mm-hmm. believe in something greater. It's not, um, will Buddhism or Confucianism or Taoism or um, Islam or Christianity or Orthodoxy or any of these faith traditions, will they be the one that land you in an eternity that's not as miserable as the other alternative eternities? It's that all of these things exist together and are held together under this umbrella of humanity despite all of these disparate pieces and they're all actually so similar to each other like mm-hmm. that's the really truly fascinating thing to me it w- the the fascinating thing would never be that i as a gay person felt excluded from and had to leave the church that i grew up with and was the majority of my identity for uh, almost you know still more than half of my life um it's that i now having exited that world and that framework of belief there's just so much more to see and and read and feel i want to backtrack a little bit and talk more as far as like your your movement away from ohio and kind of what your journey was um what your journey's kind of been like since then. Uh, you came to Nashville um, and got an internship at a label in town. You started making music. Um, mm-hmm. And on the same week as your album, Watch It Burn, the album that you worked on with John Weisberger came out, you were diagnosed with rectal cancer. How How did your faith change kind of coming up to that period of time and and how did that start to shake things for you yeah that's um i think that uh, i think that oh gosh i think a lot of things i think what i'm realizing is almost a decade in nashville i moved here in 2011 september 24th 2011 almost a decade in town I think what I'm realizing is this period of my life will be categorized by its loneliness and by its solitude. I moved here. I knew three people when I moved to Nashville. I had no social network. I had no safety net. I had nothing. I had at one point I had $33 in my bank account and a tank of gas and that was it. And Sometimes I I feel palpably that I am still in the fog of just survive, Justin, just survive. And I know that queer folks will be able to relate to what I'm talking about yeah. is the, uh, I don't know what choices I'm making necessarily. All I'm doing is doing whatever I can to stay alive and to, to, to stay an active participant in society, making money, paying my bills, paying my rent. Um, and so when I was diagnosed, it was, it wasn't 
oh, Justin, you have cancer. Oh, Justin, you have rectal cancer. Um, it was, oh, Justin, you left the only support system and structure you had in your life. You left all of that, moved away, and built a new life based on the kind of whether I knew I whether I knew I was basing my life on this tenant, this structure or not. It was based on a very queer idea of there is no one in my life that I can depend on besides myself. So I'm going to put all the eggs in my own basket and make sure that I am okay. And yeah. and <laughs> moved here in 2011. I was diagnosed in 2018. Seven years into that, I'm building a life that's centered on me because I'm the only one I can depend on. The universe was like, by the way, you can't depend on yourself either. You can't depend on your own embodiment. You can't depend on your own cells to not try to kill you. And like, what do you have left after that? Like, what is left if the only thing I had left when I moved away from my parents was my agency. I didn't have a car. I didn't have money. I didn't have a degree. I didn't have any support from anyone in my life besides me. And, you know, you get to Nashville, you <laughs> doing okay. Like I'm playing gigs. I'm touring. I'm, I played the grand Ole Opry in, in 2015, like four years into living in Nashville. That's incredible. That's pretty I'm, good, yeah. I, I'm making music. I'm making music with young people. I'm, I'm living actively rather than passively. And all of this without knowing it is built on a very shaky foundation of myself as the only thing holding it all together. And so when I was diagnosed, um, I, and it's really, it's really hard because it's not even visible. Like it's not even visible to everyone. It takes so much unpacking to demonstrate to folks that my cancer diagnosis and my journey through cancer was made so much more difficult because of structural and systemic homophobia where mm the homophobia of my family and the homophobia of the faith that I grew up in and the homophobia of the region I grew up in and the homophobia of the musics that I grew up in all conspired together to leave me alone when my body rebelled against me. Like I, when I was diagnosed, my first thought wasn't, Oh, I better move home. It was, Oh, I can't move home. Mm. I can't do this. I can't do this the way that everybody else does this. My first thought when I was diagnosed wasn't like, how am I going to survive this? It was, how am I going to ever convince my subconscious that this wasn't God's wrath? Mm. Like, how, as somebody who, like, so intentionally chooses to not allow myself to fall into these binaries reflexively the first thing that pops into my mind is there's a tumor in the rectum of a gay man that people are going to think that that's not a coincidence and whether the homophobia was the reason why my family was 400 miles away and couldn't be there for all of my appointments it couldn't be there for all of it they walked through a lot of it with me, but 
whether it was that or whether it was the residents that would come into the room and wouldn't have read my chart and would think that my friends were my wife or my significant other or the doctors or, or friends or family who would be like colorectal cancer. It's one of the easy ones, great survivorship rate. Um, the only thing you're going to lose is a year of your life. And I've lost my entire sexuality. So not only have I just has homophobia taken all of my support structures away, all of my support systems away, it's taken away my sexuality. Hmm. And, and to a point that like, I, the, the dots are so clearly drawn. I presented at a children's hospital ER at 18 with blood in my stool. And everyone thought I was lying about being sexually active. The ER attending doctor gave me a safe sex talk, sent me on my way, 10 years later diagnosed with rectal cancer. Homophobia took everything away from me. And at the same time, homophobia is so embedded in our society that that these losses that it has dealt me aren't visible to the people that need to understand it. And so I'm tasked now with this impossible, this impossible thing, which is already having a system of belief in place to not allow myself to fall into (laughs) bitterness and anger and contempt and resentment and right that binary like i will not allow myself to be on the side of the football team that is angry that i've been dealt this lot in life because as soon as i'm on that side everybody else in the world is on the other side and i'm not i'm refusing mm-hmm. to do that and so what's left you ask like what how does my change how has my faith changed how is my faith my faith my my lack of faith my agnosticism my atheism what I'm really, I, I'm, I really appreciate that I've landed in this spot because you don't really realize what shreds of your own privilege you're, you're, you're glomming onto, you're clinging to, you're holding in white knuckled hands until mm-hmm. you have them stripped away from you. And, and what I was, what I was holding onto before my diagnosis was my ableism and was my physical attractiveness in the way that I, even if I hate myself if, and experience self-hate for most of my life, like apparently I still thought I was attractive. Apparently I still thought I had these normative social currencies to allow myself to move through life with at least some of the privilege of a cis white man. And now I don't even have that security in being like, well, at the end of the day, if I can't rely on anyone or anything in this world, I've got me and I've got my body and I've got, I can't even rely on that anymore. So what that leaves you with from a faith perspective is holy shit, I had better take as much fucking grace into every single day and give it to myself as I can, or there is nothing that's going to get me through every single day. And I'm really grateful that everything has been pulled away to where I cannot seek that validation from outside of myself, but it's, it is a really difficult thing to face on a daily basis. Just like Justin, you have to give yourself that grace because A, you deserve it. 
B, you are enough. And C, because at the end of the day, at the end of the life, at the end of the month, at the end of the week, at the end of whatever, if that grace isn't coming from yourself first and foremost, it isn't going to have the efficacy or the all-covering, enveloping comfort of grace unless it's coming from you first and foremost. God damn it, that's hard. Yeah. I think you've you've put that all into such such good words. I well, thank you. I think I think there are many of us who are living through 2020 maybe asking these these kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. I think it's a you know it's been a year where community's been stripped away, where church has been stripped away for a lot of people. Yeah. And so it is up to us as individuals to um to show that grace to ourselves. Um, I know I've had to do that for myself many times this year and had to, and times where I've had to say, you know what, I'm having a bad day and that's, and I'm not going to beat myself up because I'm having a bad day. Like I'm going to just let that, let it happen. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, but, but that being said, you're right. It's, it's, I mean, from, from my, my little experience of, of that, I think it's it's so important to have other people, other stimulation to kind of just get out of get out of a funk, mm-hmm. um, and and it and it can be hard. It can be hard not only in a pandemic, but it can be hard. I think for queer people in general, there's just there's a lot of isolation and yeah. for all of us, and and it can be hard to um, it can be hard to show that grace, and it can be hard to surround yourself with the people you need in the moment you need it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, something that I'm in a cancer support group and I am really grateful for my, my support group friends. Um, it's through Gilda's club of middle Tennessee, um, a cancer support organization that was founded, um, in honor and in memory of Gilda Radner who passed away of cancer. And I've there, they, their perspectives is such a is such are such a godsend because uh, you know I will sit in a room across from someone with a terminal cancer, and they'll they'll be validating my experience. They'll be validating my feelings. They'll be validating what I'm going through. And so there's this aspect of of empathy that necessitates someone going through the thing for us to be able to relate to each other. And, and so as we're in this support group and we're talking about quote unquote new normals and quote unquote silver linings and quote unquote, like the hidden blessings. Um, one of them is that now in the pandemic, I'm really fucking good at exactly what this pandemic does, which is you have to shelter in place for health reasons. You have to isolate for health reasons. You have to shut down everything else in your life that's extraneous for health reasons. Like I just did that for two years. So I am really trying to bring, you know, where I've said that that grace can only come from inside yourself. What I mean is the belief that that grace is afforded to you and you deserve it can only come from inside yourself. I'm trying to spread grace to other people in my life every single day because I understand that 
the pressures of capitalism, the pressures of the rat race, the pressures of um, our uh, productivity cycles and the pressures mm-hmm. of the attention economy and the pressures of all of this, I just had to jettison my entire life and focus on my health. So I know what that feels like. I get it. I just did it. And I want to be able to be like, hey, you're going through the defining global crisis of our generation, of everyone who is alive right now on earth. This is the defining crisis and you're living through it. It's okay if you aren't doing okay. And I think that people don't really necessarily believe that from themselves, but if they hear it from a cancer survivor there's suddenly like, Oh yeah, of course you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So I don't want everybody to have to experience cancer to be able to empathize with this and to understand that this is that we all deserve this grace, especially right now. And especially as like you're saying, we're more connected than we've ever been. And yet we're more isolated than we've ever been as humans. Um, I just try and give it to as I give out that same idea of you are enough i try and give that out to as many people as possible because i just feel the world is starved for it right now there and we can't remind ourselves enough on a day-to-day basis that like just waking up and getting through a pandemic is enough like full stop and i wouldn't be able to say that with the conviction or with the belief that i have like deep in my core um if cancer hadn't taught me that you can have literally everything taken away from you and still I kind of be okay. Like being you're enough still by definition. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Something I'm hearing you say is this, this grace comes when we're able to actually slow down the grace that we show ourselves, but, but also to other people, like what did your time kind of recovering um, and slowing down and kind of being on bed rest, like what did that, what was that time able to, to teach, teach you? Was that when you were able to kind of really start to show yourself grace over time? Did slowing down help? I would love to say that that's when I was, able. I'm still not able. <laughs> I mean, granted, I hear, it's a practice, it's it okay. is, it's a practice <laughs> but like I hear myself and I, and like, I hear myself talking so in depth and with such awareness about grace in my own life and that I I know that I'm doing it even if I have the imposter syndrome that I'm not, you know, (laughs) like when you tell yourself enough and you believe it, when you have that moment of belief, you have to trust yourself that that is resonating deep, deep, deep within the subconscious and deep within your physiognomy, within your physiology. But that's not what we're taught. That's not. So it's, now kind of like correcting the historical record in my mind or again it's just that grace i am enough i am enough i worked full time through cancer that's enough if i had quit and not worked another day in my life after my diagnosis that would have been enough too and i know people who yeah. do that and it's 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 still a daily struggle like i yeah. could show you my calendar for this week and how busy I've been and how overwhelmed and spread thin that I've felt since the pandemic started, since this year started, since cancer started. And that I I feel like I have, I feel like I have nothing to show for myself, but Mm -hmm. 
But since I was diagnosed with cancer, I've been nominated for multiple awards. I've released multiple recordings. I've recorded so much music. I've performed all the way across the country. I've like for thousands of people, like if you really distill it, I did so much more in those years than just survive <laughs> cancer, but I still feel yeah. like I have nothing to show for myself. It's like that mm. constant daily sort of like applying grace and then applying grace ad infinitum in retrospect um, yeah. to cover all of that. Because otherwise it just, we're constantly measuring ourselves against other people. We're constantly measuring ourselves against other cancer survivors, other musicians, like other people in the pandemic. And yeah cancer uh, queerness these ideas of this like really 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 intensely personal thing is really helpful in contextualizing that like you can go through something that is so isolating and so unique and so um particular you know it is just it's mm -hmm. tailor-made it's just my experience it's just the thing that justin hiltner went through and that broad, general, zoomed-out grace is still enough to cover this as well. part of your productivity naturally as an artist but like how has your music been ha has your music been part of your healing in a way i mean is is would you look at it that way absolutely literally and figuratively and metaphorically and spiritually um my banjos are very heavy uh banjos mm. my banjo probably weighs around 20 pounds um, and so I wasn't allowed to lift it for three months after my surgery. Um, so like very literally, I like, I just like music was part of my recovery. Uh, my friends, Kathy and Marcy, who I tracked my, um, upcoming record with, um, they sent me, um, Marcy is a cancer survivor as well. And they sent me a, a travel banjo, um, during recovery a little it's like two feet long and that's great um, yeah it was it was so sweet i got it in the mail one day um and i could play banjo again um but yeah music has been a really important part of my recovery not only my music and the way that i create and the way that i i songwrite i i write very personally um to me roots music is uh so evocative and so um roots music resonates with human beings on such a raw basic fundamental level because it's all about the person who's singing it's it's like it's immediate it's 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 about strife and struggle and 
diversion from those struggles. And so I've always felt like Roots Music is the perfect vehicle, especially bluegrass and old time and the way that I kind of write this sort of amorphous country, um, country tinged stuff. It's the exact kind of music you would use to process this, this, these kind of woes, these kind of issues. Um, but besides the like physical piece of like finally being able to pick up a banjo again, I think that, um, well, I wrote this, this piece, um, for, for the bluegrass situation where I work called letting go of time, my soundtrack for a year with cancer. Um, and I just, I just unpack like how music changed for me and how songs stuck with me and how I don't think I would, I think that I process so much of the world and so much of myself through music and through song. And I didn't want to write cancer music. I didn't want to write cancer songs. Like that's so hokey. And that's so, as somebody who is in music and gets press releases every day, like I didn't want to even imagine a press release that said cancer survivor, Justin Hiltner writes album of, you know, I, no, thank you. (laughs) But God damn it. Uh, you don't really have a choice what comes out as a cancer song or not. Like I, I wrote it. I have a song that's going to be on the record. It's actually um, probably the title track called 1992. That's about the HIV AIDS crisis. And that's a cancer song. And I don't know how to like, you know, I, another way, another song on the record, cancer song. Um, I cry every day now another song on the record, cancer song. Um, And it's not because they're all about colorectal cancer but they're songs that have come to me or have returned to me during this period of my life where I realized that the context of my journey with cancer is what makes these songs important and is what makes these songs really hum and really hum, like um, have that sort of resonant sort of like goosebumps sort of tinge to them is because like, they're not just a song. They're a song that's oozing with, these experiences of mine and with the fact that when I talk about homophobia and systemic uh, bigotry and health outcomes for LGBTQ plus people, I'm being very, very literal. Um, and I, I think that cancer, that sort of idea of enoughness was really, really what helped me through cancer because you know you think oh i'm gonna have cancer i'm gonna be doing this for like two years uh i for a second i thought i was gonna write a book i thought i was gonna use all of my time during cancer to write a book lol uh didn't didn't write a book but now when i look back i actually did write a lot of songs through that process i wrote a lot of songs through that stillness i wrote a lot of songs not even all of them kind of sad or not even all of them like of the vein of somebody experiencing or surviving or working through or living with cancer. Um, but it just goes back to that, that same sort of thing about like giving myself evidence to allow myself that grace of like, you felt like an absolute unproductive, uh, uh, leech on society for two years, but, but really you've, you've been writing and processing your way through it. Um, the whole time, whether you knew it or not. Um, and I really appreciate that. Um, especially as like just this year, the like, uh, 
the slow motion train wreck kind of quality of going through cancer, you kind of can't process it until you retrospect until you have the bandwidth to kind of look back at the big picture and understand like what you just survived and to have these songs as little benchmarks, as little checkpoints, little mile markers to kind of vignettes of where I was at that point on the journey. I, I really appreciate that despite my unwillingness to write cancer music on the, on on the beginning of it all. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but it's, I mean, yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's part of your, your journey and, and for, for songwriters, it's, it's so often naming something so unique in particular to your experience that ends up feeling so universal for the listener. Yeah, exactly. Um, That is exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about the unique um, position Roots Music is in to capture those very um, ethereal kind of qualities and ideals and feelings and and understandings and distill them in a way that is sort of universally applicable. Um, The vernacular of Roots Music is just perfectly poised for that. And I, uh, and I often do argue, I was going to say, and I, I sometimes argue, I do argue, always argue that like the banjo, um, as a diasporic instrument, um, as an instrument of the African diaspora and the Atlantic slave trade, um, has this kind of innate queerness that just, um, lowercase Q and capital Q that lends itself to these songs about humanity and about, about the, universality in these really specific idiosyncratic things. Well, I've really enjoyed getting to hear the music you've put out so far and I'm excited to, to hear what's coming. Um, what else do you have kind of, uh, coming, um, down the pipeline right now? What, what do you have to look forward to right now, whether that's personally or, or professionally? Yeah. So, um, on a professional level, I am really excited about this record that I just finished tracking um, that's in the can, and I've talked about a little bit today. Um, it's just me and the banjo. One song is me and the guitar, and one song is acapella. But um, it's, I really just wanted, I wanted people to hear my story, and I don't mean that like this is not a concept record, it's not an autobiographical record, but um, I wanted people to hear my story uh, unencumbered and, uh, just me and the banjo such that, um, the songs are so front and center that they cannot be looked away from. And so I'm really excited for that because, you know, I've, I've played my whole life. I've recorded music my whole life. Um, there are plenty of recordings out there with Justin on them. Um, but there aren't any with just me and just my name yet. So I'm really excited to kind of begin the historical record of of my music my songwriting um beyond the the record which i'm hoping will be coming next year i'm going to shop it around a little bit do some do some planning do some conspiring but beyond that i am how do i want to put this i think that right now with the pandemic we're in a really unique position as a country um as a, a musical community as an LG, as the LGBTQ community, we're in a really interesting point where we could come out of this pandemic with a framework for a just and equitable future. 
uh, in place and ready to go. And Mm -hmm. I am, you know, we're nine, nine months into this thing, 10 months into this thing, depending on how you count it. And I'm starting to feel a critical mass behind this idea that this period of time is not a stopgap. This period of time is not a waste. This period of time is not uh, vestigial. This period of time is a gift, an opportunity for us to be really intentional about how we bring back in-person events and programming and music and art and how we bring back in-person community programming and and spaces like churches and community centers and and yeah. and um, advocacy organization. I think that the pandemic has shown us what's essential. And I don't mean that in the sort of like, well, who has to strap a mask on and go to work and who, who stays at home sort of way. I mean, in the fact that like, I do, would never have to go to a concert ever again in my life and I could be okay. But if I never get to make music again with somebody in person, face to face, instrument to instrument, voice to voice, I probably will die. Like that's the perspective that this pandemic, that's the perspective that a journey with cancer, that's the perspective that a journey with queerness affords us. And while we have this moment of pausing that's been handed down to us by the universe and by this this pandemic, now is the time for us to be creating a future that's actually going to be inclusive and representative of all of the people in this world and especially the people who are left on the margins and the people who are routinely forgotten and the people who are disproportionately impacted by the lethality of this disease. And that's kind of what I'm excited for. And I'm excited for that in specific ways through like, I am working with uh, bluegrass um, pride, a a nonprofit that um, uplifts LGBTQ folks in bluegrass. Um, Also with my work at the bluegrass situation, kind of along the same lines, just ratcheting up representation and inclusion in roots music. Um, I'm really trying to take that silver linings perspective that cancer gave me um, and bring that to all these constituent areas of my life, personally and professionally, to try and show the world, however I can, that like, hey, we have a really unique opportunity now to create an equitable future for all of our all of our communities and all of our human interactions. Absolutely. That's that's the world I want to live in too. Thank you so much for um for everything you're doing. Um thank you so much for for sharing your story today. Um it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for um creating a space for these kind of conversations. As somebody that like faith has been central in my life. Um and like I said, like I was just doing the math in my head like for still more than half of my life, uh, um, faith and Christianity and these kind of ideas have been central to my life. And, um, I don't often, I'm not often given a, uh, a context in which to kind of, uh, to look at those things and to examine them and to talk about them. And to, so I, I appreciate that. And, um, I'm, gl- I'm glad to be a part and, and hope that somewhere along these rambly tangential answers that there are some nuggets there that might uh, might help some people out who have found themselves in similar situations to me over the years. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's all about, is sharing our experiences so that other folks um, are, are given some hope in their journey as well. Thanks for being a part of that. Thank you. The telephone won't ring And I don't expect it to 
When I leave home, I leave no one behind That's a lonely thought When it comes out of the blue Longing for what I may never find I miss the folks back home I wonder how they are I miss that old porch swing Sitting still beneath the stars There's times that I get down If you'd like to learn more about Justin, you can find him at justinhiltner.com and over on social media at HiltnerJ. We've got all the links in the show notes for you. I'm your host, Greg Thompson. Our editor is Carrie Ed Harmon, and our theme music is by J.P. Ruggieri. And we are still proudly recording from my apartment here in Nashville, Tennessee. And if you haven't already, please be sure to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, hit that subscribe button so you can get the latest episodes of the show right when they drop. And for more inspiration and behind-the-scenes looks at the show, be sure to find us on social media at OutLoudStories and sign up for our email newsletter. You'll find all those links in the show notes as well. And we are taking a short break before we bring you more new episodes. So until then, remember friends, queer people have faith lives too. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Thanks for listening. What I really miss the most is having someone missing me.